Happy Labor Day, everybody. Of course, I probably don't have to tell you guys that Labor Day is fake, that it was a PSYOP, essentially, uh, and that it was created explicitly to remove the working class's association with May Day, which was a day of international working class solidarity that sprung out of the 1881 Haymarket bombing. Uh, which happened on May 1st. And uh, building on, you know, traditions of European uh, May Day rituals and all that. Uh, and associated with harvests, with labor, you know, with work. Uh, It was a little too radical. It was getting people all riled up. They started thinking, oh man, maybe, uh, maybe we can, should do something together, you know, as a working class who labor. And so they created Labor Day, a depoliticized uh, official carnival of, of labor as an abstract concept, like Mike Rowe shit, where... You extol all the things that are true about unalienated labor and apply them to alienated labor, which is just the devil's own uh, trickery. You could even say that that's like the root of, of like cultural superstructure, recreating uh, capitalism. It, you have to have some degree of investment from the people being ruled. Even if it's coercive, there has to be an element of, of, of uh, belief. If not... You know, in the virtue and the worthiness of the system they find themselves under, then under a preference for life over death or a preference for uh, being free than for being in prison. Like, you have to have something like that. And one of the chief pillars of that is cult mystification, is mystifying uh, what life is by emphasizing all that is good and all that is healthy about social existence and applying it intentionally, but over time just reproducing by reflex onto the, the awful system that we actually live under, that undercuts and undermines all of that good stuff. It contains that good stuff because it contains everything, but it, it is not, it doesn't generate those things. Those things are generated by us as people. The system generates all of that is awful, uh, but we confuse the difference. And so Mike Rowe can go around explaining all the virtues of, 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 of duty and discipline and, uh, and so satisfaction that come with a job well done, all of which are 100% true, but only on the behalf of oneself in concert with others. A collaborative, coordinated, beneficial <coughs> relationship that suffuses our life with uh, ease and comfort and a sense of satisfaction because we know that we're building a community of friends, a community that is safe and secure because it is consensual. But that's not how labor works under capitalism. It is wildly alienated and stripped of all goodness. And, and that is the source of much social dysfunction. But ideology doesn't make a distinction. It just takes the whole of society and, and, and subliminally, even if it's critiquing it, reinforces them as things that flow out of what we like to call human nature, which is, of course, more bullshit, more propaganda. Human nature, 
I mean, there is a human nature. There are fundamental human responses to certain conditions, uh, but they are malleable. They come from our encounter with the world as we find it, as we come into consciousness. And how, what that is will shape our response to it. There's nothing natural about that other than the fact that it, it, is, it appears to us to be in nature, but it is not nature. This is, this is an interesting question someone asked. They say, was, was that, um, that equalization of, or that increase in labor share of profit that happened after World War II totally contingent on the devastation of World War, of, uh, of World War II? And it's, yes, 100%. Uh, there was enough to go around, basically, where those in power found it more, more, of more utility to neutralize the threat of the working class by buying them off to the degree that they could because there was money to buy them off. And that's because the U.S. stood alone in the post-war world as the industrial dynamo of the entire non-communist earth. And, that and also we were in conflict with another system, communism, which was a direct threat. And you can argue that it wasn't really ideological. It was more just, well, we're Russians and we're Americans and it's about who's being in charge, who gets the, who gets the access to the, to the choicest spoils of the imperial world system. Uh, but either way, they were a real Danger and the working class were a potential vulnerability if, if there was too much self-conscious radicalization among the working class, which there was a ton of before World War II, uh, and uh, was terrifying. And the more advanced forms of forces of capital, the, more, the world finance capital, the world the capital that like had an Olympian removed from the economy, made a deal because it made sense. But that deal started breaking apart. First, uh, from the political perspective, because there was that segment of small producers who made up the backbone of like the emergent conservative movement, which in the context of the 50s and the context of the 60s was stupid. It was, why would you destabilize this deal we have with labor when there's so much fucking money to go around? But that was not a sustainable system because part of fighting the Soviets was building up these former enemies of ours who'd been destroyed because if we let them stay wrecked, they would be vulnerable to overthrow and consolidation behind the Iron Curtain. So we had to build back Japan. We had to build back Germany. Uh, we had to circulate the fucking currency. Uh, and circulating the currency uh, undermined our ability to, uh, to maintain profit at the center. Profit was still being made, of course, but it was no longer being made at the center and to be distributed to workers. It was being internationalized. But work labor was not. And so, when, when, when the economy was reestablished after the, turbulence, the, the, the destabilization of the 70s, it was reestablished on the neutralization of labor power. And, the, and, the, and the, the decision was made at the highest levels. Volcker, Carter, uh, the, builder, the fucking uh, uh, Carlyle Group, uh, the Business Roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce, that the problems, stagflation, were going to be solved by... The, and the problems of declining profits, which were finally biting in, would be pro solved by 
taking it from the labor share of value. And that meant breaking labor as uh, a countervailing force in American politics, which is what both parties got together to do. And so that raises a question asked by the person in the comments that, well, does that mean that we can't have another world war? We can't have a restoration of, the, of that post-war like, labor share without some sort of massive uh, conflict. And the thing is, is that if you want to keep the system as it is, yeah. Like, there's no more money to go around. Like, the, 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 the Bernie kind of pitched his, his, pitched his thing, uh, and a lot of people believed it on the premise of we're going to go back to the good old days. We're going to have high labor participation, high union participation and organization of our working class, and we're going to have them be at the table for these discussions, and labor share value is going to increase. But there's not, they can't maintain a system that way due to, due to the fact that this thing is all a high so house of cards. It's all built on speculative bubbles that require massive amounts of money, and specifically massive amounts of money concentrated at the hands of the very top. It's not a negotiable stance. And that's why, like, and that's why I think the people, who, but a lot of people saw that and said, well, fuck Bernie. Fuck the point of this. This is stupid. Jack me off forever. Uh, and to, me, to that I say, no. He might not be right about that. The people who believe that might not be right about that. But Bernie at, the point, at that point, and I still think this is true, was the best chance we had to stand up any kind of working class organization at all in this country. Any kind of a beginning, uh, like, uh, to, re to reconnect the severed nerve endings of the American like working class uh, so that this crisis could be met when it came and when moments of re real potential rupture emerge in the best position to engage them and to make demands instead of being like they were in the 70s, the sacrificial goat. And one of the reasons it was allowed to happen is because no one thought it could happen. Like the people at the top, like the fucking Teamsters endorsed uh, Reagan. You know who else endorsed Reagan in 1980? Fucking Petco. The air, air traffic controllers who he would summarily fire en masse when they went on strike a few years later. Because they thought, oh, Carter's fucking up. Well, maybe Reagan will give us a better deal. Nobody had got the memo that this was all over, that both parties were just going to sever the connective tissue there they were going to cut the spine out of the labor movement. So, but, and, and so, even if I think that's true, I don't necessarily think that even now, post-Bernie, a, a political movement has to lead with, we are going to have to marshal our forces for an apocalyptic confrontation with capital, because, as I have said a billion times, there aren't enough people who already agree with those premises, and you, can't, you cannot have any faith, any confidence that you can convince them, especially since all the people who think they could convince them are only adept at arguing in this hot, hot box of people who have already accepted all of their premises, and that they essentially don't have the language to speak to normal people. Because that hearkening back to the New Deal era, it, is a rhetorical, it has a rhetorical effect, and that rhetorical effect, especially for older voters... Uh, is to remind them of a time when things weren't so fucking shitty and, and reorient their thought of why that might be. Oh man, Jessica Krug. I love how uh, there is no chance that this thing is going to 
lead to any reflection of any of the yahoos involved in this, any of the dummies who are part and parcel of that fucking farce. No one's going to say, hey, isn't it weird that somebody could just say all the right bullshit and essentially, uh, uh, like, Frank Abagnale them, themselves into, uh, into the halls of the academy? Just guy knowing the right words and knowing the right way to act and the right way to respond to any challenge and could do whatever they want. There's no concern. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, there's a woman who is recently outed, self-outed, I don't know why, maybe she couldn't handle the pressure anymore or it was going to come out eventually, where she admitted that she, she, she had uh, risen, she'd become a, an academic of like some sort of race theory uh, from, and the whole time presenting as like an, a Latina, uh, an Afro-Latina, even though she was very light-skinned, very light-skinned, and she spoke with some sort of like what she claimed was a, uh, a Caribbean Bronx patois. Uh, and no one objected, no one challenged her really, and she had it out herself. And no one is out, no one's going to look at this at all. No one is going to think maybe this is stupid. Maybe we have bad. Maybe our maybe standpoint theory has inherent problems with it. Maybe the idea that all you have to do is invoke your identity in order to defeat an argument or neutralize a concern leads you open to people who can do whatever the fuck she wants. Right. So she's saying someone challenged her on it, but how long did it take? How long did it take? And there was one person who posted a, a, a screenshot of a, uh, of a DM exchange they had with her where she actually did say, you know, how, where, so you're black? And she goes, yeah. And she's like, ah, well, in what way? I mean, you just present as white. And she's like, I don't identify with the colonizers. And she just uses a bunch of the buzzwords. And the lady kind of goes, okay, and just sort of keeps going. And in the thread, she said, uh, I was suspicious, but I didn't want to do respectability politics. And for people who don't know what that means, there's this like line of argument that says that anybody who is like in a in a in a oppressed category in America is under no obligation to to uh, is no under no moral obligation to adhere to any standards of like uh, decorum in argumentation or in scholarship or in politics because they are bad faith attempts to neutralize radicalism and are inherently racist because they're prejudging like what might be uh, like authentic uh, uh, cultural practices. And this incident really shows that you can make that argument all day from a moral perspective, that I have the moral right to act that way, to act the way I want to, to speak my truth and not, not worry that the white man is going to concern troll me. But once again, because these arguments are all one-dimensional, no one asks the question like, well, does it make sense for me to do that? Does it make sense to operate from that principle in, in, in the terms of negotiating life with other people? Because remember, there's not, there's not just a moral dimension to a question. Because all these people who are talking about the, the need, about how bad respectability politics are, are doing it in the context of advancing what they say is social justice. They're saying, we want social justice. And they say, by us being active, we will bring it about. But if that's the case, and if you believe that, then you are obligated to not just examine every decision through a moral lens, uh, uh, removed from practicality. You also have to ask yourself, what is this going to do if I act this way? 
And the answer for this respectability politics thing is it disarms everybody. It makes you ultra paranoid about everybody unless they say the right words. And in this case, you can just be awful and obnoxious to people and they will essentially be disarmed by that, partially because they don't want to do respectability politics. But most of all, I think this is very much part of it. Brian Quimby has pointed out that, uh, uh, that owning conservatives by saying that you were in the military, I think he said liberals, but it's true of conservatives too, uh, is perfect because they will never doubt you. They will never challenge you because to them that is anathema. That is a taboo beyond taboo. And so therefore no one could ever even do that. If they couldn't think of it, no one could think of it. This is one of those lacuna things I'm talking about. They cannot conceive of stealing valor. So of course no one else would. Uh, at least until they like see evidence of it. Or, like those guys who are like freaks and like obsess about it, they have their own weird thing. For normal people who are like really reverent about, uh, about serving, uh, either if they did or didn't, that's anathema. And this is, a, this is the liberal version of that. Uh, like uh, lying about your race, transgressing against people through like a racial uh, appropriation, certainly like taking a spot that might go to uh, a, t a platform that might go to a minority is absolutely unthinkable. And so they can't even imagine uh, someone doing it. And that means that you're totally disarmed. You can't argue anything. Because how are you going to know what anybody's intentions are? You can't say, well, you know, uh, you go by who they are. You could say, I can go by who they are, but what if they're lying? And, and more importantly, what if the fact that they are a certain identity doesn't actually mean they know what they're talking about on a given subject? Because as we can, it's pretty easy to see that there is no universal standpoint from any one particular like, intersection of oppression. If there were, there would be no black conservatives, right? At least according to the thinking of these people. Like they're talking about like what emergent uh, 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 insights come from being, having a particular experience. I mean, if, if they're not universal, then they can't be used as the benchmark. I did have a very nice weekend. Thank you. Someone said that, uh, asked if I had a nice weekend. It was a good one. It's been nice so far. Kind of uh, taking the day slow after yesterday. Kind of went hard. But it was a very nice day. Uh, Someone, what do I think of the Lodge 49 ending? Sadly, I don't really think it had one. I mean, it was pretty clearly intended to have another, at least one more season. And I honestly think that it could have really like, brought the strands together 
even just one more. So I really hope it gets another season somewhere. I know at this point it's a slim read, but that last scene of the last episode is so fucking awesome and evocative, and it just demands another season. But Lodge 49, it's like, people's, it's, it, I mean, people are saying, give me the business for talking about a prestige show, but I think part of the big reason that it's not popular was that it didn't follow a lot of the, of the necessary elements of prestige show. One of them that I think gets under-discussed is how, and this is really weird when people want to insist that like, television is the new high art, how many of those shows are genre shows, essentially? Are, are some sort of, of like, um, plot-first structure? Like, even The Sopranos, which, of course, isn't really a mob thing, you know, it's a deconstruction, but it still has the structure and certainly the, like, scenes content of a genre production. And that's true of, like, The Wire, Deadwood, uh, Breaking Bad, Fargo. Like, the, like uh, the best of this genre is still genre stuff. And it's like, I'm not disparaging genre stuff. I mostly watch it because it's fun and I like it and I have kind of middle-brow tastes. I'm not going to front. But what I don't do is I don't act like this is the ceiling of fucking uh, like art now. And the people who assume it is, is uh, it's baffling. I mean, it's not baffling. I think I understand why. You know, People have essentially given up on anything better because it asks too much of them. I don't think it's a useless to talk about genre shows because I think the thing about genre programs is that they include certain elements that are designed to indulge the audience. And you can say they have other things. They do. Like, genre isn't all uh, a good or, uh, you know, all dumb. There's plenty of great genre movies. I love a lot of fantastic genre films and shows, some too. But there is still a, there is a indulgence at the center of it that I think adulterates to some degree the artistic intent. Uh, and once again, that doesn't make it bad. And it doesn't make mean not to be engaged with. It just means that if you want to actually have like a well-rounded artistic diet and you want to feel like you are, you know, challenging yourself, which is the point of art to some degree, it's not only that, but it's partially that, then you should really challenge yourself. And part of that involves engaging with things that do not indulge you along certain predictable ways. And the fact that we've even lost the vocabulary to talk about art that way indicates the, the way the culture has been deadened and, and stupefied by, by the overwhelming uh, uh, influence of capital. Someone said that tacking toward critical praise attenuates, and, and too, yes it does. But look even in that case. One of the reasons that genre show, one of the reasons that prestige shows stopped being even interesting after a very short time is that very quickly uh, they went from a creator having an idea and then trying to pursue it to a creator having an idea and then tacking off of subconsciously or consciously the response from the media. Because there was a mutually reinforcing dynamic, especially in the early aughts and the early internet era, between critics validating television as an art form and creators of shows making those programs 
And that's one of the things that I think is most annoying to me about Fargo, even though I really like it. I think the, the, the Achilles heel for that show is that I think it is far too conscious of, of the critical like consensus around uh, what makes good TV. And that means it is good because the guys making it are very, and guys and gals making it, are very good at hitting those benchmarks. But they're limited also by those benchmarks, which are built around this need to reinforce a consensus around like what makes good TV that is inherently, inherently deformed because the, the, the form is inherently deformed. Or more deformed than other forms. And like Lodge 49 doesn't really have a lot of the stuff that gets bells and whistles going in the critical warehouses. The critical firehouses, rather. But it's really good. I would say that Mad Men did not have the traditional genre trappings, but I but anytime you're dealing with uh I don't know, I, I think the way they shot the sixties and like the specific way that that era is just so evocative of like an American the American Renaissance, like our greatest moment culturally, in terms of like total confidence in, in our in our hegemony, uh and, and a, a, a futuristic forward looking approach to all cultural issues, which re reflected itself in that fantastic aesthetic. And Mad Men really, really leaned into the aesthetic of the 60s, which helped prop up its critical reputation in a way that was not necessarily, you know, uh, artistic intent. But I understand that that was also like part of the, part of the artistic intent was to lure people in with that and then reveal the harsh underbelly, but at the same time it's like, Oh really? Wow, you're gonna tell me? You're gonna tell me something David Lynch hasn't told me about that shit? I do love Deadwood. I have to say, I haven't watched it since I haven't rewatched it since it came. Once since I worst watched it, which is years ago now. But and I don't think it's. I don't think I'm worried about it not being as good as I think it it is. Because I'm pretty sure it's great, but I don't know. I kind of like having it in my memory. <clears throat> I didn't really like the Deadwood movie too much, honestly. I understand what he was trying to do. It was, it was just sort of, it was kind of fitting because that movie is is like the movie is about the, the the movie is about these characters dealing with the traumatic after effects of going through the experiences in the first three seasons, uh, while also being a meta, like uh, grief expression about the show's untimely cancellation like it's about the it's about death but it's also about the death of deadwood the premature death of deadwood because it, the, the plot of it if anyone has seen it is basically just a compressed version of the third season the plot points like he even beats up hurst and puts him in the jail again uh and it's because and they kill charlie utter which is basically a repeat of them killing uh uh, uh what's his name jim beaver's character uh, Farnsworth, or Farnsworth, Ellsworth. That's it, not Farnsworth. Um, but that's because it's like we didn't get a chance to end the show, and and what they probably what he had in, what Milch and those guys had in mind for the fourth or fifth season was probably too ambitious to cram in 
satisfactorily into a two-hour movie, but what they could do is like have a chance to grieve for what they never got to make. And I feel like that's kind of the meta text of, of the Deadwood movie, which I get why they made that, and I get why that was a thing that made sense to do with the limitations of just trying to put this capstone at the end of this huge project, and considering how many years later it is and how much visibly older everyone is. Uh, which means that all the like the the evo evocations of death and and like grief are even more pointed. Uh, so it has those resonances that are good, but like, it, I don't know. After all that time, it, it's a little, it's a, it's a little underwhelming, I guess. I haven't seen Planet of the Humans. People say it's echo fash. I don't really care about those arguments. Uh, I someone's asking about Chinese action movies. Not really. Uh, I did see The Wall, huh. uh, but. The Great Wall, right? That was the name of it? The one with Matt Damon? Which I thought was really funny because people got mad at that for cultural appropriation because a white guy was leading the movie, even though it was an all-Chinese all production that was like an attempt to make a Chinese blockbuster. And they wanted a fucking American movie star because people recognize American movie stars. Um, no, but anyway, I know that doesn't count. The one that people keep talking to me about is Wolf Warrior 2 because it's so hilariously uh, like an American action movie flipped over because the Americans are the bad guys and he like owns the shit out of them. Uh, but I essentially need to know if there's CGI, and I kind of assume there is, and if I don't know if I can get over that, honestly. Like, I'm trying to get to the point where I don't complain about squibs so much by avoiding seeing them and being upset by them. I do like now how uh, how like they're getting pretty overt with the with the propaganda, the Chinese propaganda in in all their stuff. I like that. I like that we're we're gonna get we're getting real great power rivalry again. I mean, it's inevitable, and I think it undermines a lot of people's under uh, assumptions about like how these countries work. Thank you. Yes, uh, the death around the corner appearance that was a lot of fun. Uh, Mike is uh, Mike is very sharp. I think I'm going to go on again soon because we didn't get a chance to talk about the master and uh, we want to break that down. Is China the best at soft power? No, that's still us for now. We'll see how long it lasts, but our cultural output is still dwarfs China's. Uh, it's one of those things where we underestimate it because of how powerful it is. It's when people think about us fighting China in a conventional war. They have a lot of guys, but we still have just an absurdly large amount of weaponry. Now, of course, it's a lot of it is for show and not meant to work. But I mean, hell, even if you just like dropped pallets of cash on China, it might do some damage. But we still have a huge military, and we still have more than anything, really, 
like, like we have a huge military that asserts control over the globe, but what, what manufactures consent for American empire way more even than our military presence is our cultural output. Uh, in terms of like ratifying, you know, uh, some sort of consensus. But of course it's undergirded by the military. But they, they're, they're reflections of one another. And so they're both pretty powerful and it's both still us. But you know, it's all about the trend lines. Like all this stuff with China is about trend lines, not the current situation really. I think that some of the Chinese trolls I've seen have been okay, like the troll farms, but I think the Saudis are still more entertaining. I know I, somebody's mad that I said us. Uh, I don't think it's, I get, you know, you don't want to make it feel like this is all consensual. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I don't want to lose sight of where I am. And who I, and you know, what, what, I, what system I benefit from. Yeah, somebody says dollars. That's the three things. That's the three legs of American, of American hegemony within the global capitalist system. Because remember, it's like it's not hegemony over like as, as in, a, in, a, in a conventional empire, it's, it's, it's hegemony of like the geographically centered American political and economic class, but incorporating all other regional powers and regional uh, uh, economies. It's, it's the circulation of dollars, uh, weapons, uh, and... Um, Transformers movies, basically. And it's funny, when you think of how many big American blockbusters are centered around the military and involve military uh, like consul consultation and, and the use of actual military equipment, uh, like Transformers movie debuted the F-22, like giving a theoretical place where that weapon, that plane might be useful. Hey, what if the Decepticons show up? So that's, um, you could look at it kind of as like a, a, a catalog. Like you put out a movie and it sort of also, it doubles as a weapons catalog. Hey, this is what we got. Both as a veiled threat, but also as a uh, enticement to buy because we sell a lot of that shit. Someone's asking about Sirhan Sirhan and about MK Ultra. The theory about MK, there's not a lot of, uh, there's a lot of circumstances. It's, it's all very circumstantial, much like with Manson, but it still raises a lot of eyebrows. Uh, one of the big things about Sirhan was not just that he claimed that he didn't remember the night of the shooting. Uh, it's, it's the nature of his uh, automatic writing. Like he didn't write a diary like Arthur Bremer or something. He just wrote RFK Must Die over and over again, which is uh, not a usual association with an assassin. They tend to be like, Baroque in their in their self justifications and, and want people to understand them instead of like like RFK must die is almost more like convincing himself of something uh, and I believe although I haven't read about it in years this might be like my mind filling in a blank I believe if someone could correct me if they know I'm wrong that uh, when he was a, he, that 
uh, at one point, he was a jockey, and at one point he had a uh, concussion, or he broke a leg or something, falling off of a horse at the paddock, and he was uh, treated at a hospital that received NK Ultra uh, grants, like McGill University did. Um, and I don't know, I'm not sure. But you add that to, like, you know, the fucking gunpowder residue behind RFK's ear when Sirhan was standing in front of him, the fact that more shots were heard, more shots were heard, or, or bullet holes were covered, than are, uh, could be found in the chamber of uh, of the Ivor Johnson twenty two caliber pistol that Sirhan was firing. Thane Caesar, fucking uh, Hughes Tool, Iron Bob Mayhew. It's like with all the assassination stuff. It raises eyebrows, and I kind of just, like, I think all that stuff is most pedagogically useful as, as narrative sort of betting, you know, but it's, it's not really good to fixate on it, because a lot of it is just, uh, a lot of it's just phantoms that can't be grasped, and trying to grasp them does, it, it takes your eye off the ball, so you just have to, like, Leave it around as furniture, like accent pieces, when you're trying to, like, construct a world. Someone's asking about the MLK assassination. See, that one to me is the one that I think I intuitively buy the most, and it boils down to motive. Like, for me, I'm not fully convinced, like, Mike, Mike Judge and a lot of people are now like building a new consensus on the left that like replaces the old Alexander Coburn idea that JFK couldn't have been assassinated by the deep state because he wasn't a threat to them. He was a cold warrior. Why would they do something so horrifyingly dangerous and norm violating norms that benefited them uh, to kill him? And people are building a case that no, like JFK actually did have a, like Oliver Stone says in JFK, have a explicit agenda of stepping down the Cold War in a way that would have fatally undermined the military Keynesianism that was powering the American economy. Uh, and of course, you know, make them vulnerable to communism winning. Or that it was Alan Dull it was essentially a revenge hit by, by Alan Dulles. Uh, the one I felt a little underwhelming because I just haven't got convinced myself that JFK was that guy. Uh, and I don't know if anybody could, honestly. The more, everything more specific, I can't really, because it could fit with a, all the specific stuff about the assassination, how it might not have been the official story, that could fit with a bunch of interpretations. Uh, like the Alan Dulles did it as a revenge thing, which I kind of don't buy, because it's like, I mean, it's a little petty. Uh, I mean, to kill the president, it's, it's a little petty. Uh, but like, you know, it was, uh, it was Cubans, or it was, uh, or it was the mafia, and the CIA basically covered it up to prevent people from finding out that they collaborated with the mafia to try to kill Castro. Or like Libra, it was a, a botched uh, assassination staging to get JFK to recommit, which, and the thing is, that also kind of fits with a lot of the broader arguments about JFK being a threat to national security. The thing is, I can't pierce that veil. I can't get through there. Uh, like, the motivation question for me is too, too central. And RFK is similar, but there you have, like, subsidiary things of, like, well, if any of the any of the JFK conspiracy theories are true that involve any kind of deep implication of the government or like the mafia or something, 
uh, not even in doing it on purpose, but in covering it up afterwards, there would be a huge incentive to prevent the brother of the guy you did that to to be president. Uh, there's, I mean, and there is some evidence that RFK told people around him that when he, he wanted to be president partially because he was going to bust open the books on his brother's assassination. And if you have any part in it, even if it wasn't directed by the state to stop Kennedy, uh, you have motive. But once again, it's a high hurdle. It's a high hurdle. He's, uh, but for me, like our MLK, I think one that he was viewed, uh, he absolutely was viewed as an existential threat by people who mattered. Like specifically J. Edgar Hoover, one of the most powerful men in America, like a guy who could press a button and have a thing done, a man who was essentially the deep state personified. He was the physical and human embodiment of the buried infrastructure of, uh, of like military or of, of like domestic coercive mechanisms that undergirded the political class and made him essentially above them. Because he knew all their dirt. Uh, and, he, and he saw MLK as an existential threat. Uh, so there's motive there that I think is sufficient. And also, if you're the FBI, you have very little to fear of anyone finding out about it, you know? Because all the, most of the Kennedy assassination conspiracies involve around some subsection of the government planning this thing. But... Uh, but in a way that would maybe have pissed off other parts of the government or parts of the deep power structure that weren't, that weren't ready for that violation of norms. Like, say, the Kennedy family, who had, was one of their family members got killed, and they're not going away. They're still a powerful political force. If you kill MLK, you have not destabilized anything from the point of view of the unified opinion of the ruling class. In fact, you've stabilized it. So the risk of getting caught is essentially nil. But, you know... As with other things, the, 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 the evidentiary case, separate from the motive question, is also largely circumstantial and mostly based on incongruities, like the fact that James Earl Ray was uh, spent over a year, I believe, as a fugitive who'd broken out of a prison in Missouri uh, with no visible means of support, buying insanely expensive telescopes, traveling to Canada, and then, most puzzlingly, after the assassination, flying to uh, London uh, on his way to Rhodesia to join up uh, with, with, the, with the Ian Smith's white minority government's military there, which was a big thing uh, in the 60s. Was like, uh, was like, guy, like The guys who are now Proud Boys, uh, the real hardcore ones, in the 60s, they signed up with the Rhodesian army to like, go in on the helicopters and perform Mozambique drills uh, on black people, which is what, what they really wanted to do. Uh, but there weren't, I mean, some of them did that. But like, how the hell did he get to London? This fucking yokel. Um, so that's why, but like I said, it's so circumstantial. Uh, there's certainly not the, the physical evidence that you see in the RFK case. Um, but I think it's a stronger circumstantial case because I think the motivation thing, I don't know what to do about the camera, man. Why are you looking at me anyway? Look at something else. Why, what I, by the way, it looks fine in my camera. It looks absolutely pristine in my camera. I do not know why it goes through smudged. So you can explain that to me, please. Can someone with a science degree tell me why it looks absolutely clear in the 
screen that I'm looking at, but I'm looking at the fucking computer also, and it's blurry as shit. So explain it. See, it's bitrate. What does that have to do with my fucking camera, you dumb assholes? Sorry, I'm losing my religion. But I'm trying to talk here. And the, the tech stuff always throws me off because it's another thing i got to worry about. When we do the streams from the office, they will be pristine and you won't be able to complain. So, uh, I wanted to read something from a book I just started, which is, uh, which is Russell Banks' Cloud Splitter, which is an epistolary novel uh, of letters ostensibly from Owens Brown, the last surviving son of John Brown, from years after Harper's Ferry, recounting the experiences of living with John Brown. Uh, and I just started it, and it's very good so far. Uh, but I wanted to read something from it that hits on one of the set. Like I talked about John Brown here, and how he is like the model of sacrifice out of love, of conviction, out of belief, out of faith, and how it's hard for us to look at that and make it coherent because we don't live that way because because we have been materialized. We, we, are, we are sort of ego-bound in a way that makes us uh, unwilling to risk comfort. And it's not our, like I said, it's not our fault, we have to, but we have to fight against it. Uh, and one of the things that flows from, like a lot of people will point out to John Brown, like, oh, he was a religious fanatic. Like if he was around now, he'd like be shooting up abortion clinics or he'd be like a MAGA psycho because he's so pissed about like... Uh, 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 like uh, uh, pink-haired uh, transgendered people going to the wrong bathroom or something because it's against the Bible. Uh, and I think that that confuses how religion works in, uh, within someone because the people who are that way, the people who are psychotically fixated on like enforcing a, a, a uh, explicitly religious social demand, do so out of lack of belief, out of lack of faith. They have no belief, and that's why they're tempted. That's why they have to seek it out and suppress it, not for their children, because they're their children, you know? You should be instilling values. And, and part of it is because their lives are harder and more alienated and, and, and they have less time to, for, to spend instilling values in their children and that does give them anxiety. But a lot of it is they're tempted themselves. I mean, we know the porn, the, the amount of porn consumed in the Bible Belt, Utah, for example, I think was one of the highest internet porn consumption in the country. Uh, but that's, that's, that speaks to the fact that there is a real temptation. And uh, that's because of a lack of, of real conviction in not... The, the, not that God exists. They think God exists, but like God is a separate being 
heaven as a real place, their soul as eternal, and never to be brought back into communion with God, really. If so, at far, far distant future. Uh, in their, uh, so they believe in that, but that's just an external mechanism of enforcement of behavior because they don't have, their ego is completely fixed on self-indulgence. Uh, and so they want to do all the bad things. They want to do all the bad things, and only God in their head will stop them. And if culture gets more tempting, that will tempt them too. It's the logic of, of the, Al of the, of the like, Al-Qaeda and ISIS guys. Like all the Belgian gamer kids who went to, to ISIS to cut heads off, it wasn't just the, the, the promise of you know, uh, slave girls and stuff uh, or going to heaven. It was because they believed in God like, as, a, as an architecture of like, an enforcement of uh, behavior. They believed in like, the, the mythology of it and where their soul would end up, but they did not believe it out of a desire to transcend the self through communion with others because they grew up in fucking alienated anhedonic Eastern, uh, Western Europe. And it's like, that's why so many of them were like fail send gamers or drug dealers, uh, criminals. Uh, and like why, um, why the, not some of the 9-11 hijackers went to a strip club. Like that before they did 9-11. That wasn't, that wasn't hypocrisy. It didn't mean they didn't believe in their faith as an abstract concept. What it meant was is that they were tempted by all of the West and they, wanted, they would rather annihilate themselves with, in, in an act of purity than risk continuing their life and being tempted, which is what the West would continue to do. And that's because, and that's because the people want to say that's Islam. No, that's not Islam. That is the fact that we, this is the way different cultures at different levels of symbolic like reasoning and symbolic logic and, and, uh, and like axis of uh, like symbolic attachment respond to the, the destabilizing and atomizing effects of capitalism as they undermine social connections. How do people respond to that? And that, like, you make these people who have in their head an ancient religious tradition that sprang out of, originally, the, a desire to dissolve distinctions and re become reunited with all other people and then with God, which is all other people in the universe, uh, and has over time been replaced by this, this psychic regime of, of coercion because the lives we live have drained that of, our, of us. It's drained out of us. And so, we, I mean, we're fallen. We're, that's, why we're, that's the actual sin. That's the actual fallenness. But because we don't even recognize that's the source of it, we decide, oh, I just have to not do the bad things and stop the temptation to do the bad things, and that will be, make me good. No, you'll still be separated. You will still go to hell when you die, and that you will die in fear because you will die uh, gone mad at the prospect of losing, losing attachment to the world attachment to the world that is totally organized around you perceiving yourself as the sole node of consciousness in the universe. And that's, and John Brown was different than all, so many men of his generation and so many religious men of his generation. Because remember, there were plenty of pro-slavery Christians. I mean, the, the fucking Southern Baptists broke away from the Methodists because they were being too persnickety about owning people and built a whole new ideology. I mean, the Dutch Reformed Church in, uh, in South Africa was like arranged around like reifying hierarchy. Why? Because it was a really a project of indulgence. It was a project of extracting surplus. We're going to get the diamonds. We're going to get the land. But John Brown didn't want to do that. John Brown saw the humanity 
because he felt connected to all humans, he felt the connection to black people the same, because it was not obfuscated by, uh, by this craving for satisfaction in the material world that comes from ego separation. He didn't have that. And so he could see clearly and then act, uh, act morally, which is what we can't do. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is an individual struggle with, within all of us to eventually rediscover the ability to do that. Uh, but, but he was there. He was like a, he was a, he was a rare, like the system is not set to create people like him, certain, even by 18, the 1830s. Uh, but certainly not in America. But the right things popped together. He was in the right places at the right times, had the right grooves in his brain to create, uh, to, to actually see the world as it existed. To, like to, to put on the, he, put out, he created his own They Live glasses. And I think in this section, there's early in the book, uh, Owen Brown is describing John Brown as a father. Uh, and reading it really hit me just how this, what he's describing, whether it was true or not, you know, like I think, yeah, obviously this is a, a, a novel, but I think that the, this description comports to how I imagine uh, faith works in one who really believes. Uh, let me find it here. All right, I'm going to, here we go. Following yesterday's letter, I've been recalling this morning those early days in New Richmond and the peaceful prior years of my boyhood in Hudson, both wildernesses of the old Western Reserve when we resided there, as fraught with difficulty and danger on our first arrival and settlement as was our Adirondack Mountain farm later. We lived in our villages, then amongst wolves and bears and mountain lions and deep forests that blacked out all light in the lost ravines. We lived close to Indians, Iroquois mostly, suspicious and withdrawn and silent, who sometimes left their forest enclaves and visited our villages to trade, but mainly kept a safe distance from us. And there was the occasional fugitive slave coming up from Kentucky or the mountains of western Virginia by way of the Underground Railroad, run generally by the Quakers back then, and passing through to Canada, a quiet, frightened, day-long visitor hidden in the attic of our house and spirited on under hay and father's wagon as soon as night fell to the farm of a Quaker or some fellow fellow radical abolitionist 30 or 40 miles to the north. But recalling those days of long ago, after having seen all of the civilized world that an ordinary man needs to see in order to know the true nature of people and society, I am struck by nothing so much as our sustained virtue and orderliness. Wherever we lived in those days, wherever we set up our house and farm and commenced during doing business with our neighbors, we were like an island in a sea of chicanery, godlessness, disorder, and willful ignorance. For we Browns were distinct. We were different from most of us, those who surrounded us. We were surrounded not just by wilderness, but by reckless sinners. As individuals and as a family, we were sinners too, of course, like all men and women, but ours was the fastidious sin of pride, for we were proud of our difference and took pleasure in enumerating the ways in which it got daily manifested. We even prided ourselves on the number of occasions and the ways in which our friends and neighbors were affronted by our virtue and orderliness, or found it strange or eccentric, and as a result held themselves off from us, choosing to view us as did the Iroquois, from what must have felt to them a safe distance. Our pride, that subtlest and most insidious of sins, got manifested in a variety of ways, but all reports to the contrary, I do not believe that we were arrogant. 
Certainly mother and later my stepmother Mary and my sister Ruth were not arrogant, and the younger children were all naturally modest and shy, boys and girls alike, and were constantly encouraged to remain, remain so when they ventured out into the wider world that home provided, and for the most part they did. My older brothers and I, too, strove not to lord it over others less fortunate than we, less disciplined, less inclined to sacrifice their force and, and time on earth for the greater good, what Father called the common wheel. And even God, Father himself was not arrogant, although he was indeed commanding and headstrong, and made only those demands of us that, we made of himself, that he made of himself as well, and made no demands on others, but wholly accepted people as he found them. To Father, other people chose to live the, our, our way, and there were a few here and there who did, or they choose not to. It was the same to him either way. On the other hand, though, there was never a man so detached from the sinner who so loathed sin when it came to, to the sin of owning slaves, which Father labeled not sin, but evil. All his loathing came down at once and in a very personal way upon the head of the evildoer. He brooked no fine distinctions. The man who pleaded for the kindly treatment of human chattel, or, as it had, could occur naturally, like a shift in the seasons, argued for the gradual elimination of slavery as was just as evil, was just as evil as the man who whipped, branded, raped, and slew his slaves. And he who did not proudly, loudly oppose the extension of slavery into the Western territories was as despicable as he who hounded escaped slaves all the way to Canada and branded them on the spot to punish them and to make pursuit and capture easier next time. But with the notable exception of where a man or woman stood on the question of slavery, when Father considered the difference between our way of life and the ways of others, he did not judge them or lord it over them. He did not condemn or set himself off from our neighbors. He merely observed their ways and passed silently by. And he knew all the ways of men and women extremely well. He was no naif, no bumpkin. My father was not the sort of man who stopped, stopped up his ears at the sound of foul language or shut his eyes to the lasciviousness and sensuality that passed daily before him. He never warned another man or woman off from speech or act because he was too delicate of sensibility or too pious or too virtuous to hear of it or wit to witness the thing. He knew what went on between men and women, between men and men, between men and animals even, in the small crowded cabins of the settlements and out in the sheds and barns of our neighbors. And he knew what was nightly bought and sold on the streets and alleys and in the taverns of the towns and cities he visited. The man had read every word of his Bible hundreds of times. Nothing human beings did with or to another or themselves shocked him. Only slavery shocked him. Father was a countryman, after all. A farmer and stockman much admired by other farmers and stockmen. A working man who could roll up his sleeves and cut timber, tan hides, or build a stone wall along the side, the roughest men in the region. And although he was a failure at it, he was a businessman too. A man who traveled widely to Boston and New York, and once even to England and to the European continent, and stayed in hotels and taverns where prostitutes plied their trade in the lobbies and drinking rooms below, and visited men who traveled with in their rooms next to his, only with a thin partition between. Father knew the ways of most men and women, and he did not loudly condemn them. He merely elected to behave differently, to go his own way, to keep himself pure, and to marry young. Our virtues as a family were, of course, guided and enforced by our earliest childhood years, well into adult life, by Father's own example and by his steadfast instruction. Although when we did become adults, after about six, age of 16 or so, his manner of dealing with our lapses changed, and that he no longer chastised us or enforced his will and the wisdom of his ways with the rod and belt or punished us for our disobedience. Instead, he merely withdrew from the offender the shining light of his trust, and no punishment was so powerful a corrective as that. He did not require that we share with him his deep, unquestioning Christian faith, as long as our every act was a reflection of our belief in the rightness of the golden rule and our love of the truth. 
If you cannot be a believing Christian, but will nonetheless do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and if you will obey the first commandment of Jesus Christ and only substitute the word trust, truth for God, then I swear that I shall not disown you. That was his pledge to us. And it is only that purity of intent and confidence, i.e. faith, real faith, in the interconnectivity of all. Not in some fucking fantasy bullshit about, about lakes of fire and streets of gold. The interconnectivity, the, 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 the inherent connection of all humans. Only if you start from that premise will you be secure in your beliefs. Otherwise you will have to always strike down temptation where you see it. And you will be pulled off the beam of reality and pulled towards reactionary uh, attitudes. Because there were a lot of Christians who thought themselves as godly as Don Brown at that time and who uh, believed in God as strongly uh, and spent all their time complaining about like the demon corn liquor and you know women showing their ankles. Like Boston Corbett cutting his balls off because he got talked to by a prostitute. Uh, in New York. He wasn't doing that because he could see in front of him. He wasn't trying to ward off doubt. All right, guys, I got to go a little. I, I'm, I'm going an hour because I started early, but I got to end early because I'm doing a first in years fantasy football draft tonight. Uh, I, I intend to do poorly. I mean, I don't intend to do poorly, I'm predicting, with 99% sure confidence that I will be, in fact, bad. But we'll have fun. I always leave just as you get here. I'm sorry, buddy. It will all be on YouTube. And you can check it out on uh, Twitch as soon as it's done, unless they, the other guys go on. I should draft Lamar Jackson. I want to draft Aaron Rodgers, even though he sucks now. Go pack. All right, guys. Bye-bye.